Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and thank you for letting me be a part of your scripture study or your lesson prep this week. I'm here to help you dig deeper into the scriptures and help you study and teach them with more relevancy, impact, and power. And this week, we're going to cover the second half of King Benjamin's address to his people in Mosiah chapters 4 through 6. Before that, a quick reminder, if you'd like printable lesson plans based on these videos or the PowerPoint slides or handouts that I use to make them, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to my channel, my blog, and my shop. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching With Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. I want to start by telling you a little something about myself. I've always been more of what you would call an endurance athlete. And since high school, I've been into things like long distance running, triathlon, biking, mountain climbing, and backpacking. And that's probably because I've never been coordinated enough for team sports. But when it comes to just dogged one foot in front of the other, minute after minute, hour after hour, that's what I do somewhat well. And call me crazy, it's what I enjoy. So, for an icebreaker, I might begin by asking if there are any long-distance runners, bikers, or mountain climbers in the group. And inevitably, there's going to be a few. And I ask, why do you do it? What keeps you running? What keeps you climbing? And those can sometimes be hard things to answer. Uh, The most famous answer to why do you climb mountains is uh, because it's there. But I feel there's more to it. There is strength that comes from enduring. There's a sense of accomplishment that comes from enduring. There's self-mastery that comes from enduring. There's triumph in crossing the finish line or standing on the peak. Also, there's joy in the journey. And for me, I enjoy the time with my thoughts. Uh, I enjoy the time in God's creation. I often hike with other people, and that builds relationships. Some of my fondest memories of growing up are of climbing mountains or backpacking with my dad and family. And then with my own children, climbing and backpacking with them are some of my greatest joys as a parent. Well, today we're going to study the words of a man who had something to say about enduring a different kind of race, a different kind of climb. That man is King Benjamin, and even if you don't enjoy running, climbing, or endurance sports— We all need to master the principles of spiritual endurance. And perhaps you've experienced times in your life where you felt spiritually weary, or you feel that you've lost that fire that you once had for the gospel. Do you ever get that feeling of being spiritually burnt out? King Benjamin has some counsel that I really feel is going to help you. He's going to teach us how to endure. And one of the most intriguing things about King Benjamin's speech is to consider his audience. What kind of people are the inhabitants of Zarahemla? See if you can find the answer in Mosiah 1.11. And in that verse, we discover that they have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Well, that sets this sermon apart from many others in the Book of Mormon. There are a lot of examples of people going from bad to good in the Book of Mormon. But here we have a sermon directed at people that are already good, people already on the path of righteousness. And that's why I feel that this talk is going to be so relevant and applicable to many of you. If you're watching this video at all, 
I assume it's because you genuinely wish to learn more about the Book of Mormon and the Gospel, which tells me something about your heart. You are good people. King Benjamin is a leader of good, obedient people. And if you're a leader of diligently obedient people, what might be your number one concern or worry for them? What might keep you up at night? My guess would be that you would probably worry that they would cease being a diligently obedient people, that they could somehow be turned or give up or rebel. I know as a parent, that's my number one concern for my children. And I have good children, very good children. But I pray every night that they will continue on the path that leads to the tree of life, that they will endure to the end, and that they will remain firm in the faith. Well, after reading King Benjamin's talk many times over, my conclusion is that he is most concerned with his people's spiritual longevity, their spiritual diligence, their ability to maintain their current pace of goodness for the long haul. So I encourage you to read these chapters with that theme in mind, looking for what is going to help you to endure to the end, what's going to keep you running or climbing. So turn with me to Mosiah chapter 4. And we've already covered the first half of this talk. We've seen King Benjamin convince them of their eternal indebtedness to God. We've heard him warn them of the dangers of listing or withdrawing from the Spirit. We've heard him encourage them to put off the natural man and become saints through the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And at this stage of the sermon, they've been deeply affected by King Benjamin's words. In chapter 4, verse 1, we see that they've fallen to the earth. And in verse 2, the people express two requests or prayers to God. Can you see what they are? One, they ask that the atoning blood of Christ be applied so that they can receive forgiveness of their sins. And two, they wish for their hearts to be purified. Their first request is answered immediately in the next verse. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins, and having peace of conscience, because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ who should come, according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. And this, of course, is one of the prevailing themes of the Book of Mormon, God's swift forgiveness when it's sought for with sincerity. And remember that these are diligently obedient people, the message, even diligently obedient people sin and need the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, just as much as the wayward soul that's turning back to Christ. And they need it because, Mosiah 4.29, Finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye may commit sin, for there are diverse ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. I mean, there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. We can sin in our deeds and in our words and even in our thoughts, as he says in the next verse. And that's not meant to be discouraging. It's just reality. Perfection is unattainable in this life. And so they recognize their need for forgiveness. And it comes. And with that forgiveness comes joy and peace of conscience. But remember, they had another request as well. Their second request is to have their hearts purified. And that's not going to be answered until chapter 5, verse 2. And what phrases in chapter 5, verse 2 show that they have had their hearts purified? 
Well, they say that the Spirit has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that they have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. That's having your heart purified. And you know, that verse has become such a focal point of this talk that maybe we zero in a little too much on that phrase, and we kind of forget the message of the rest of his talk. And the concern with that focus is that we start to look at the mighty change as a one-time thing. And I don't think it is. The mighty change may come at various times in our lives. Remember, these people are good people, diligent in keeping the commandments. They've already committed to righteousness. They've experienced the change, but they're feeling the mightiness of that change here. What I believe is happening here is that their commitment to the gospel is being reinvigorated. Like when you blow air onto an already burning campfire, the coals light up, the flames climb higher, the intensity increases. There's a change in the fire. It's not that the fire's gone out and King Benjamin's relighting it. That's not the mighty change. His sermon has blown air onto the fire of their faith, and it has come roaring back with renewed energy and commitment. And you've probably all experienced this before, haven't you? After a particularly powerful talk or session of scripture study, general conference, or after an inspiring spiritual experience or testimony meeting, you walk away with this feeling of, I never want to sin again. I have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. My heart is purified. But that intensity is something that needs to be rekindled frequently in our lives. In fact, you see this idea brought up again by Alma years later to the people of Zarahemla again in Alma 5.26 when he asks, And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? So do you still feel that same intensity? He's trying to rekindle that change of heart into a mighty one again. He's reminding them of that prior change that they've had, but he's concerned that they might have lost it a bit, hoping to rekindle that commitment. Also, if the mighty change was a permanent state of being, why would Benjamin do what he does in chapter 6, where we see him appoint priests to teach the people that thereby they might hear and know the commandments of God and to stir them up in remembrance of the oath which they had made? So maybe some of you have asked yourself this question. Have I experienced the mighty change? Is that something in my past or is that still in my future? Well, let me help you out on that one. I think I could sum up the meaning of the mighty change with one simple question. Do you want to be good? That's it. I think that's all you have to ask yourself. Do you want to be good? That's the mighty change. The desire to do what's right to have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Not that you always do good, but that you want to do good. Notice how that description's worded. They don't say we will no more do evil, but that they have no more disposition to do evil. Their hearts have been purified, like they requested back in 4.2. In Mosiah 4.13, King Benjamin says that they will not have a mind to injure one another. Both of those suggest that this is more of a state of desire. And obviously, having the mighty change of heart can't mean that we never sin again, that we never struggle with the impulses of the natural man, and that we only do good continually. Do we honestly believe that King Benjamin's people never sinned after this talk? 
It's just not realistic. And to help you internalize this, let me give you some examples of the mighty change of heart. Are there individuals out there in the world who don't have a desire to be good? That lie, steal, cheat, get angry, and hurt other people without a second thought? The unfortunate answer? Yes. There are individuals that are wholly committed to themselves and their own will. They've become their natural man and are therefore enemies to God. But that's not you, right? How do you feel when you lie or get angry? You probably feel badly about it. Why? Because you want to be good. Because your heart is pure. But that darn natural man keeps getting in the way. You're like Nephi back in 2 Nephi 4 who laments about getting angry with his brothers. And that's Nephi. If you feel that way at times, if you find yourself discouraged about your indiscretions, if you feel remorse over the wrong choices that you make, rather than getting overly discouraged about it, I think you can take that as a good sign. You've had the change of heart. You want to be good. You hunger and thirst after righteousness, like Jesus said. And there are going to be times when you feel the mightiness of that change roaring back with vigor at frequent intervals in your life. Perhaps one of the best examples I've seen of this attitude comes from Boyd K. Packer, who describes the moment when he fully committed to the desire to be good. He said, I'm not ashamed to say that I want to be good, and I found in my life that it has been critically important to establish this intention between me and the Lord so that I knew that He knew which way I committed my agency. I went before Him and said, I'm not neutral, and you can do with me what you want. If you need my vote, it's there. I don't care what you do with me, and you don't have to take anything from me, because I give it to you. Everything. All I own, all I am. And that has made all the difference. Now that's a mighty change of heart. And you know, there are a number of other different metaphors that King Benjamin uses to express that idea of change. There's one in 4 verse 5. Can you see it? He says, For behold, if the knowledge of the goodness of God at this time has awakened you. The metaphor is waking up from a deep sleep. The mighty change is going from sleep to alertness. Then he uses another metaphor in chapter 5 verse 7. Can you find that one? It's a birth or a rebirth. They are now spiritually begotten. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name, Therefore, ye are born of him. They've been born again. All of these things are the same idea. The awakening, the rebirth, the mighty change, the purified heart. And I believe that if you can honestly say that you want to be good, that you've experienced them. You've been reborn. But is that it? Is that the end we've been seeking? No, that's just the beginning. Once I'm awake, now I go out and I act. Now that I'm born, now I need to get out there and start growing. That's why I said at the beginning that I felt that this was more of a talk about endurance than change. So I wouldn't call this lesson a mighty change of heart. I'd call it one of these other phrases from the following verses that suggest spiritual longevity or endurance. Can you find the endurance phrases in the following verses? Chapter 4, verse 6. Be diligent in keeping the commandments of God and continue in the faith 
even unto the end of your life. That's maybe what I would entitle this lesson. Continue in the faith. Chapter 4, verse 11. Always retain a remembrance and stand steadfastly in the faith. Chapter 4, verse 30. Continue in the faith of what ye have heard, even unto the end of your lives. 5.5. Five. Be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us all the remainder of our days. 5.8. Be obedient unto the end of your lives. And 5.12. Remember to retain the name written always in your hearts. See, the message is all over these chapters. It's more about living and acting than it is about waking up. It's more about growing than it is about being born. It's more about continuing than commencing, retaining, than gaining. It's about enduring. And in that process, he's also going to give us some great advice on living and living well. And as usual, for time's sake as teachers, we've got to pick and choose. We don't have an infinite amount of time with our students. So I'm going to focus more on the things that I feel are specifically going to help us to endure for those times when you feel spiritually weary or burnt out or weak. But please know that there are some other equally important, powerful messages in there. Benjamin gives some incredible parenting advice in chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. He teaches some profound truths about charity and giving in verses 16 through 26. Some of the best out there. And then he reminds us how we need to watch ourselves and our thoughts and our words and deeds in verse 30. And I encourage you to spend some meaningful time studying and applying those principles. But what I want to zero in on here are the principles that will help us to endure. And I see five in particular. And to make this a little more interactive, I'll give you the verses I see them in and the title that I give them. And then I want you to read them and prepare yourself mentally to explain how the message of that section or verse helps us to endure to the end, as if you were going to teach them to somebody else that we're having trouble enduring. And if I were teaching a class, I'd divide these out to groups or individuals and then have them share. So here they are. Retain a remembrance. Commit with a covenant. Retain the name. Value the voice and run the race right. Those are the things that I feel are going to help keep you going on the sometimes long and difficult path of righteousness. So number one, retain a remembrance. This comes from chapter 411. They've come to the knowledge of the glory and the goodness of God. They've tasted his love. They've received a remission of their sins. That's the rebirth. That's the awakening. That's the change. They want to be good. But that was just the beginning. He then says, I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance those truths. We can't afford to forget them. We need to be reminded of God's goodness and our own nothingness and our need for his atonement and the importance of staying humble. And I have to admit, it seems like Benjamin really hammers the humility idea in this talk. Maybe a little harder than I would be comfortable with with most audiences that I would be speaking to. You know, he says things like, unworthy creatures, you're less than the dust of the earth, your nothingness and your worthless and fallen state. 
But you know, King Benjamin knew his people best and what they most needed to hear. So I'm going to chalk it up to that. And granted, we need to be humble and retain in remembrance that we are dependent on God for all that we have and are. And something else that will help us to retain a remembrance is calling on the name of the Lord daily. Continual prayer is a key element of remembering. And one of the coolest blessings for retaining Him in remembrance is the promise that He will retain something in return. This is a two-way street. What will He retain if we retain? The answer is in verse 12. We'll retain a remission of our sins. Just because we're good people and we want to be good doesn't mean we still won't need a large helping of forgiveness. Often. So retain a remembrance and you'll retain your remission. That blessing of continuous forgiveness helps me to remember and to endure. Number two, commit with a covenant. This is related to the last one because this too is going to help us retain a remembrance. What do the people say they're willing to do in 5.5? To enter into a covenant. What is the covenant? To be obedient to his commandments all the remainder of their days. Covenants solidify our commitment. And that continues to be a part of our worship today, doesn't it? In fact, we renew that covenant every week. And then I want to show you something cool that I noticed about chapter 5. What are the specific promises that these people are being encouraged to make? Look at the following three verses and tell me if you see it. 5.5 five again, 5.8, five, and 5.12. In 5.5, five, five, to be obedient to his commandments in all things. Verse 8, to take upon you the name of Christ. And 12, to remember to, re- to, remember to retain the name written always in your hearts. Now, where do we see those commitments being made? Obedience to his commandments, taking upon ourselves his name, always remembering. It's the sacrament, right? Isn't that cool? Those are the sacrament covenants. And I'm not saying that they're performing the sacrament here. They're living the law of Moses at this time. But the covenants are the same. Can you see why we take the sacrament every week? Endurance. Making those promises every week in the sacrament helps me. To endure. Number three, we have another retain. Retain the name. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, Benjamin teaches that when we make that covenant, we're reborn. He says in verse 7, And now, because of the covenant which you have made, you shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. Well, when you're born, you're born to parents. And in this rebirth, Jesus becomes your new father and you take upon yourselves his name. We become children of Christ. Like Paul says in Romans 8.15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And Abba is the Hebrew word for daddy or papa, the word a little child uses to call their father. That's why Jesus is sometimes referred to as the father as well. He's the father of our covenant. And we become his sons and daughters by making it. I become his little boy or his little girl. 
And as his little boys and girls, we want to grow up to be like Daddy. We can sing the primary song with sincerity. I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm following in his ways. I'm trying to live as he did in all that I do and say. Verse 12 tells us to remember to retain the name written always in your hearts. In order to become like somebody, I need to always remember them. Why? So that I will do what they did. When I need to make a choice, I remember them. Their example comes to mind. And I ask myself what they would do. And then I follow that example. When we're born, our parents give us a name. And often, parents will give names to their children in the hopes that they will reflect that person or become like them. My parents did that. In fact, coincidentally here, I was given the name Benjamin because my father wanted me to grow up to be like King Benjamin. My middle name is Michael, which is my father's name, encouraging me to follow his example. And my last name is Wilcox, which connects me to a family, a community, a heritage. Therefore, when my wife married me, she made a covenant to me and I to her, and she took upon herself my name and became a part of my family. The same thing happens symbolically when we make the baptismal or sacramental covenant. When we commit ourselves to Christ's path, we become a part of Christ's family. So really, in a sense, my full name is Benjamin Michael Wilcox Christ. Now that doesn't appear on my driver's license, but it's written on the fleshy tables of my heart. Then verse 9 describes what will happen at the second coming, or the judgment. He's going to call for his family. He's going to call his little boys and girls to him. And if I have that name on me, I'll be found on the right hand of God. Sometimes we put our names on things. I might take a black sharpie and write my name on my backpacking gear or my tools, or my name is inscribed on my scriptures. What does that mean about those things when I do that? It means they belong to me. So if Jesus puts his name on me, what does that suggest about me? I'm his. And I know that this has been shared many times, but I do love the story of George Albert Smith, who had a dream that he met his grandfather, who he was named after, George A. Smith from early church history. And in the dream, his grandfather asks him, what have you done with my name? And he thinks back over his life and all that he had done, and he answers, I have never done anything with your name of which you need be ashamed. I'll provide a link to a short church-produced video retelling that story in the video description below. But my deepest desire and hope is that at the judgment, that I will be able to stand before King Benjamin, my father, my family, and my Savior, and be able to say to each one, I have never done anything with your name of which you need be ashamed. The thought that I may have that opportunity helps me to endure. Number four, value the voice. Now, not only do we need to know the name by which we are called, but we also need to know the voice that calls out our name. Benjamin instructs us to Hear and know the voice by which ye shall be called, and also the name by which he shall call you. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and the intents of his heart? 
So if we want to be called to him at the last day and be found on his right hand, we've got to be able to recognize his voice. Now, everybody's voice is unique. No two voices in this world are the same. In fact, I think it's kind of funny, but when somebody that you know well comes and knocks on your door, you might call out, who is it? And how do they usually respond? They say, it's me, which on the surface is really kind of a silly answer, isn't it? It's me. But it works because the person knows and is counting on the fact that you will recognize their voice. And how do you get to that point? The point where you recognize somebody's voice. Well, you spend time with that person. You speak with that person often. You develop a relationship with them. So one of the most important things we can do in this life is to become familiar with the voice of the Savior. How do we do that? We speak with him frequently in prayer. We spend time in his home, the temple. We listen intently to him as he speaks through the scriptures, the prophets, and in church meetings and classes. Because whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. And all throughout our lives, we're getting to know that voice better and better. Then one day, when Jesus calls out for his family, he's going to say, All those who have taken upon themselves my name come out of the world. And our ears will perk up and we'll say one of two things. Either we're going to say, I don't know that voice. That's not familiar to me. I'm not going to run to a stranger. I think I'm going to stay where I'm at. My thoughts and intents are far from his heart. Or we're going to say, ah, I know that voice. I've heard it many times before. I trust that voice. I've heard that voice in answer to my prayers. I've heard that voice echoed in the words of the prophets. I've heard that voice in the temple. I've heard that voice in the scriptures. It's the voice of my father, the voice of my savior. And we'll come unto him and we're going to be found on his right hand. So getting to know the voice will help me to endure. Finally, number five, run the race right. And I know it's a little out of order, but I've saved this one until last because I feel it really captures the essence of the entire lesson. It's a great one to end on. Benjamin says, and see that all these things are done in wisdom and order. For it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. And again, it is expedient that he should be diligent, that thereby he might win the prize. Therefore, all things must be done in order. See, I told you this was a talk focused on endurance. What better metaphor can we have than a running race? And this isn't a sprint we're talking about here. Life is a marathon. Remember, the mighty change of heart is not a one-time event. It's a state of desire. It's what keeps you running. It's not the birth. It's the growing. And running a marathon and growing up to be like somebody are long-term processes. In fact, Alma's going to give us another metaphor later in Alma 32 where he's going to compare our spiritual development to growing a tree from a tiny seed. Again, a long-term process that takes time. So here he's going to give us some growing advice or running advice. He tells us to be wise in the way we run and that we shouldn't run faster than we have strength. 
that's one of the first lessons you learn in distance running. Don't go all out at the beginning because eventually you're going to run out of steam before the race is over. I remember making that mistake in my first cross-country race. I took off very fast at the beginning of the race, and lo and behold, I ended up at the front of the pack. I was feeling good, like, wow, I'm going to do awesome in this race. Well, I could only maintain that pace for a limited amount of time. After the first mile, I slowed down, way down. I just couldn't maintain that pace long term. Then other runners started to pass me. Then more passed me, and more, and instead of finishing that race near the front, I finished way at the back. I learned a valuable lesson. Don't run faster than you have strength. I should have run with more wisdom and order. Well, it's the same with us spiritually. We need to be careful not to push ourselves too hard and end up giving up because we're too tired or discouraged or disillusioned with the race. I know that many in the church find themselves discouraged with their progress and feel like they don't measure up because of their weaknesses or their struggles or their imperfections. And sometimes they give up on the race. So be patient with yourselves and your progress. We're not going to be exactly like Christ all at once. We're not going to be fully grown adults in the gospel weeks after we're born. We're not going to have a giant oak tree testimony the day after we've planted the seed. We need patience, wisdom, and order, and time to get there. We may have experienced the mighty change, but we're still going to make some mistakes. The race is a long one. We'll have some stumbles and some side cramps, and some times where we'll be ahead and times when we're behind. Sometimes we'll be leaders, and sometimes we'll be followers. Sometimes the sun is going to beat down on us, and other times we'll feel the cool breezes blowing. But what's most expedient, Benjamin says, is that we should be diligent, that thereby we might win the prize. That's the secret to this race. The key is endurance. And the wonderful thing about this race is that you don't have to be first across the finish line to obtain the prize. You just have to cross the finish line. The race is with ourselves. And all that cross that finish line win the prize. And what's the prize? Mosiah 5.15 says it best. King Benjamin's concluding statement. Therefore, I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works. Endurance, right? That Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his, that you may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and in earth, who is God above all. Amen. Well, a few questions for you to ponder here. And if you're a teacher, you can pick and choose which ones you want to focus on and then scatter them throughout your lessons at the appropriate time. But here they are. What things have helped you to maintain your desire to be good? What has helped you to retain a remembrance of the goodness of God? Are you grateful for your weekly opportunity to partake of the sacrament? Why? How have your names inspired you to be a better person? What have you done in your life that has helped you to recognize the voice of Christ better? 
What does not running the race faster than you have strength look like in your life? And what is your endurance plan? What can you do this week that will help you to endure? Well, one of my heroes is a man named Ernest Shackleton, the famous Antarctic explorer. His story of survival is an amazing one, and his family had a motto, which I find inspiration in and strive to live by myself. The Shackleton family motto, by endurance, we conquer. It's not speed. It's not talent. It's not perfection. It's not brute strength that is ultimately going to bring us the victory in this life. It's endurance that matters most. So I encourage you to run and run wisely. I encourage you to grow and grow deliberately. I encourage you to retain the mighty change, the I want to be good attitude. And when it starts to wane, to fan those flames again and again. I encourage you to endure one spiritual footstep in front of the other. And if you will, running with patience and wisdom, not faster than you have strength, I tell you that you will conquer. You will conquer the natural man or woman. You'll conquer Satan. And through the atonement of Jesus Christ, you'll also conquer sin and death. And God will seal you his, not only as a son or daughter of God, which we all are, but as a son or daughter of Christ, our Redeemer. And that's all I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it with somebody that you feel it could help. Thank you for watching, and as always, get out there and teach with power.